Hello and welcome to the first TeamCast of 2023. With the advent of novel therapy options and likely plenty more developments in the coming years, we are going to discuss shared decision making in today's episode. To dive deeper into this topic, I'm pleased to be joined by Len Valentino, the Chief Executive of the National Haemophilia Foundation in the United States of America, and as you all know, an experienced haematologist. Len, welcome. Would you like to start off by just introducing yourself? Sure. Hi, Kate. I'm Lem Valentino. I'm the President and Chief Executive Officer at the National Hemophilia Foundation in the United States. I've been part of the bleeding and clotting disorders community for more than 30 years, beginning my academic career at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago in the United States, where I worked as a hematologist and developed the Rush Hemophilia and Thrombophilia Center. I retired from academic medicine in 2013 and joined industry, which was a tremendous experience focusing on drug development. And that culminated with time at Spark Therapeutics, focusing on gene therapy development, which was really exciting, but also a real learning opportunity. And then in 2020, I left that position and joined the National Hemophilia Foundation in my current role. And this has been a tremendous opportunity to come back to the community, come back to patients and healthcare professionals, and really help usher in a new era of innovation in hemophilia treatment and management, but also in von Willebrand disease, as well as rare and ultra-rare clotting disorders and platelet disorders. So it's been a, it's been a long career, but I'm really excited to be where I'm at today and to talk to you today as well. Thank you. So I think as an outsider looking at the NHS and people with bleeding disorders in the States, they seem very much more engaged in care than perhaps people are here in Europe. Why do you think that is? That's a good question, Kate. And I think there are a large number of people who live with bleeding disorders in the US who are engaged with whether it's their hemophilia treatment center or their local chapter. So we have 53 chapters throughout the United States, as well as the national parent organization. And people are engaged with their healthcare team or with the chapter. But I'll tell you, there's probably a third of people who are outside of either of those networks that rely on local hematologist, or in some cases, even a primary care physician, a GP type, a healthcare provider, where they're not necessarily receiving state-of-the-art, up-to-date expert care, either in terms of diagnosis management or even in terms of therapeutics. We've got 70% of the population engaged that are well aware and knowledgeable, have access but there's 30% that we have a challenge, probably like all over the world, where there's still access to care issues. So what we were going to really talk about today was shared decision-making. So can you tell us what you mean, or what we mean when we say shared decision-making, and how much of a reality that really is then in the States? Shared decision-making is, I think, rooted in exactly what we're doing today is having a conversation. And it's when a healthcare professional and a patient and her or his family, the key stakeholders for that individual, come together 
and can engage in dialogue, discussion, and debate about opportunities for care, including treatments, sometimes new treatments, sometimes existing treatments, but really focused on what's important to the person who lives with the disorder. And that might be the patient herself or himself, or it could be a loved one, a caregiver, a parent, spouse, or another caregiver, because the opinions and views, goals and objectives of all of those individuals is key in this process. For decades and decades, medical care has been driven by healthcare professionals. We, as the experts, provide our guidance and our opinion and also our bias on what treatment or pathway an individual should take in the course of their care. And you, as the patient, really should listen to what I say, abide by what I say, and do as I say in terms of your care, because historically, the healthcare professional has been viewed as the expert. The challenge with that way of doing things is that as a healthcare professional, I may not really understand what your goals and objectives and what you value in terms of your care is. So it's important to engage in this dialogue where we seek to have some understanding of the values that are important to you and and as well as the other stakeholders in a patient's life. So there may be importance. I can remember having a fellow who I provided care for with hemophilia who was a pharmacist. And he spent all day dispensing drugs and at a window. So he needed to be able to stand, but he also needed to be able to use his arms and his elbows to be able to hand drugs across the counter. And, you know, so that's what was important to him was being able to stand for long periods of time and be able to items across the counter. And when he would have an elbow bleed, that hampered his ability to work. And so that was what was important to him. And he helped me to understand what he valued in his life. And then I could help create a treatment plan that was tailored around what was important to you. Sometimes it's family life or it's school or work, but I think it's really helping the healthcare professional understand where a patient and his family or her family are coming from to ensure that we all understand what the goals and objectives are for that treatment. So it really begins with dialogue Um, And in some cases, it's a, I don't know what, a trialogue or even more people involved because you need to get all those stakeholders represented. So having a physician and a nurse, a social worker, a physiotherapist, as well as all of the stakeholders on the patient side engaged in that process is important. The first step in this is to make it a welcoming environment. And both sides have to feel empowered and comfortable having this type of Dialogue. I used to say that it was the healthcare professional's responsibility to invite the patient into the conversation. I've now changed 180 degrees. I think our goal is to activate patients to feel empowered and capable of 
telling their healthcare professional, this is the way I want it done. I want to have a stake in my decision making. So I think that was a really lovely story about how you engaged with the patient, listened to what it was that he wanted, that whole thing about having elbows that work enough to pass parcels of drugs over the counter, really telling. How do we get people that don't or aren't as enlightened as you to change how they engage with people with bleeding disorders in that whole conversation around their care? You know, I think we've had some of this discussion before. And the challenge is the medical system, beginning with medical training. And that includes training for physicians, for nurses, and other healthcare professionals has really been rooted in a maternalistic, paternalistic sort of hierarchy that I am the expert. You are going to take my advice and my suggestions and follow And, you know, you will comply with what I say to do. And we've really moved away from that, talking about instead of compliance with about adherence. But I think it requires a change in the the training and the way that healthcare professionals are trained early in their careers, that this is a partnership, not a dictatorship. And we still have medical training that's done in that sort of maternalistic, paternalistic sense. There's a few innovative programs that are beginning to move in this direction, but we've got generations, not just a generation, but generations of healthcare professionals who see themselves as the expert. um, And we need to work hard to change that in those people who are in their mature stages of career, but also the ones who are just entering training and learning. So it's going to require some wholesale change, but I think it has to begin with convincing the educators that this is important to begin the education process of younger trainees, whether that's the students or the trainees, the postdoctoral trainees, but it's going to be an important sort of paradigm shift that we really need to undertake to get medical system to change the way training is done and that it's really an engagement process that we need to undertake. I think that's really interesting. If I think back to when I started out in nursing, it was that doctors were gods, nurses did what doctors said and the patients did what I said. I think there's been a real move in towards that sort of whole multidisciplinary team now. And we just need to bring the patient into that a little bit more and family and carers and anybody else that's involved in helping them to make those decisions. We always, when we have these conversations, talk about people with severe hemophilia and their involvement in shared decision making. But how do you think we get to engage people that don't have severe hemophilia in decision making, perhaps when they only get treated on demand for their type 1 von Willebrand's disease every five years or whatever? It's not dissimilar for people who have less severe forms of hemophilia or von Willebrand disease or platelet disorders, that their lived experience is critical in terms of articulating goals and desires, what they want to get out of their treatment. So for example, you bring up people who are maybe treating on demand very occasionally. They're doing that for a particular reason. They've made a choice on treating episodically as needed for bleeding. And maybe that's a convenience factor. 
Maybe it relates to cost, but it also may relate to what their goal is, which is essentially, I want to forget about my disease. And they only want to think about it when it's absolutely necessary. And that may be something that we as healthcare professionals have not appreciated. And I came to understand that my patients that I was providing care for were making decisions for various different reasons. Some were essentially uneducated. They didn't understand the benefits, for example, of prophylaxis and how that could be a life-changing opportunity for them because they had never experienced it. This is the way I did it for 30 years, and I'm going to continue doing it this way in the next 20 years. But once they, they saw the potential benefits of a different treatment regimen, they thought this was great. And it was one of the benefits of the clinic that we had, which was essentially cradle to grave. So we were able to bring youngsters in with older men and women with more severe forms of disease. And we used each of those populations to educate the others. But I think it's important that people understand what their opportunities are, what their options are. And that can only be done when they have information. So it's first getting giving them access to the information, ensuring that they understand. And that's not always true because our the level of health literacy in our communities is sometimes not so good. So it's really bringing the conversation to the individual and helping them understand the information in a form that they can really consume it. And once they understand it, then helping them understand what their options are. And then once they understand their options, allowing them to make a decision. And I learned people who are treating episodically are sometimes doing that with all the information that they need. And they're making an informed decision to take that course of action. And no matter what I was going to do, I could not change that. And I, it was only when I realized that they were making an informed decision to treat episodically that I felt comfortable moving in that direction with them and then empowering them to do the best job they possibly could and giving them the resources that they needed when treating in that fashion. And I think that's true for people with hemophilia or von Willebrand disease uh, or other bleeding disorders. It's really that shared responsibility and that shared decision-making that's so important. It's the healthcare professional understanding the patient and the patient understanding the healthcare professional. So you just said something really interesting, which is about forgetting my disease. So gene therapy, just licensed or available not yet in the States and here in the EU for hemophilia B, BU and hemophilia A for us. How do we make sure that patients are making the right choices in that shared decision-making way rather than just having gene therapy because it means they can forget they've got hemophilia? Yeah, I think that's a really critical question. And as you said, it was an exciting with approval of the first hemophilia B gene therapy product in the United States. And I think this gives people with hemophilia B a new opportunity, but it's also a new challenge. It's understanding the technology, understanding what gene therapy might provide and what it doesn't provide. I think we still have a health literacy challenge. We have people who don't understand 
that gene therapy is not going to change their the inheritance of their hemophilia, for example. So something very fundamental that they need to understand. So it begins with a lot of education. And that education needs to be provided in an unbiased way. And I think that the manufacturers of any product, and that includes gene therapy products, are the most knowledgeable and intimate with their particular product and the technology. But their job really is to share that information in ways that others can use that information. And whether that's healthcare professionals or it's patient advocacy groups that can then take that information and present it in an unbiased way to patients, their family members, and other stakeholders so that unbiased information can then be used in that shared decision-making process. So I really see the technical information coming from the developer of these products, but then the it's really passing the ball to the next person, and that is the healthcare professionals and patient advocacy groups, which really have responsibility of providing unbiased information in a comprehensive way so that an individual and her or his family understand all of the options, what the risks and benefits, alternatives to each of those options is, and importantly, what we know and what we don't know about each of those options. We talk about the known knowns and the unknown unknowns, and it's really those unknown unknowns where the challenges are. And there, there's things that we know about. We know that there could be challenges with, for example, liver health. And it, we may not have all the answers today, but people need to go into this with their eyes wide open and understand. And as a leader of a patient advocacy organization and as a healthcare professional, I see my job is to provide that information and make sure people understand what their decision implication might be. And the last thing that I want to have happen is people come back in 10 or 20 years and say, you didn't inform me. You didn't do everything that you could have to protect me. We've seen a lot with the the tainted blood inquisitions and work that's been being done in the UK recently and everything that was done in the US. We can't have that happen again. We, We really need to provide information to people in that unbiased way and not be coercive. And one of the fears that I have is we have healthcare professionals who really are eager to administer gene therapy, we need to make sure that they're biased towards one gene therapy or another or a treatment or another is not transmitted to people and their influence their decision-making process. It needs to be done in an unbiased way. I think it works the other way as well. So if you've got somebody who doesn't believe in gene therapy, how difficult that might then be for somebody to get it if they really want it. It's going to yeah. be an interesting time ahead, I think. Yeah, and it's so important that people have access and it's access to information so that they can make an informed decision. And then it's if they decide that this is the path that they want to follow, that they then have access to the treatment that they've chosen is optimal for themselves. And as healthcare professionals, we need to then encourage them to do the best job that they can with that treatment. 
So it's in giving them all the information, giving them the education, providing them the resources, and of course, providing them the follow-up opportunities to monitor for any of these potential adverse events and side effects in both the short and the long-term. So that's why long-term follow-up in these, with any of these innovative therapies is going to be so important. So a slight change of track, you recently published about your blue sky thinking for the NHS, and that was around areas of research or evidence that's missing for the patient community and how we might gather that in the future. Can you just explain a little bit more about that? Sure. So that was a long process, which began with listening to people who lived and live with bleeding disorders. And it was these are the key stakeholders where information has to begin. So it was engaging in conversations with women and men with hemophilia, with von Willebrand disease, with rare and ultra rare clotting disorders and platelet disorders, vascular disorders, to really understand what they viewed as their challenges and what they viewed as opportunities. And understanding the gaps in their care, where they saw the greatest need, was a real eye-opening opportunity. So it was gathering that information from these people who had the lived experience. And these are the real experts. We also, in healthcare professionals, uh, physicians, nurses, physiotherapists, social workers, psychologists, geneticists, and genetic counselors, as well as people who were doing basic research in the laboratory to understand the gaps in the work that they were doing. So we took all of this information. We did, we had discussions with people. We then did some listening sessions with various groups, which were more formalized. And then we did a survey. We did a community-based survey where we had more than a thousand people participate in that survey to try to rank some of these into priorities. And then what we did next was we took all of that information from the community and we empowered a steering committee to create various working groups based on the information that we were able to gather from the people who were living the day-to-day, whether with the disease or providing care or researching those diseases. And the areas that were identified to focus on were hemophilia A and B, um, von Willebrand disease and platelet disorders, rare and ultra-rare disorders, women, girls, and people who have the potential to menstruate. So the unique issues that people who menstruate have, which really deal with sex and gender biology. Um, We also had a a clear need to focus on health equity, because again, any innovation needs to have that equitable lens and access was critical. So access and equity were another area. And then the last working group focused on infrastructure. And of course, how do you get all this funded? You know, so if you create the infrastructure, you have to be able to then have the funding for it. And those working groups met for about nine months and did the really hard work of turning gaps 
and challenges and care into research questions and priorities. And that culminated in October 2021 with a research state of the science that we held over four days. And that research state of the science was, again, another opportunity for community engagement and community involvement. So we held it virtually. Of course, it was during the pandemic, but we had more than a thousand people participate over those four days. And there were a series of didactic presentations, but more importantly, engagement happened in every session. So there were opportunities for verbal as well as electronic engagements. And over those four days, we learned a great deal. And I think the community learned a great deal as well. And from that work, we will have a series of manuscripts that will be published in 2023. And those manuscripts will focus on each of those working groups. So six manuscripts from those working groups. And then as well as having some international perspective, because we think that the questions that people in the U.S. raised and that gaps that were identified in here are not specific to the U.S. They, they may be differently phrased in Latin America or in Asia, but we think that it's important that we have the voices of people in other areas of the developing world. So we asked for perspectives from Latin America, from Africa, and from Asia to be included in this supplement that will be published in 2023. And I think that's important because these are not U.S.-centric. These are, these are issues and questions that are challenges all over the globe. So we really wanted to have that kind of a perspective. And the work that we're doing now is moving from learning to action. So we're now building the blueprint. We're building a national research blueprint for how we're going to conduct the research that's necessary, bring the stakeholders together, build the infrastructure, and get funding for it. So I think that's all really interesting. And I said, as I asked you this question, it was a slight sideways step, but actually it's all about shared decision-making, isn't it? It's about engaging patients and carers and healthcare professionals in shared decision-making about the future research that is going to happen within bleeding disorders that will impact on them. So I think that's, it's equally important as to the shared decision-making around the care that they receive right now. Absolutely. The things that you and I do as healthcare professionals, Kate, are predicated on one thing, what the people that we're providing care for need and what they want. And, you know, that's true today for the care that we can provide. And it's true tomorrow for the innovation and the research that we can bring to them to enhance their future life. The only thing I would close with is that this is an extremely exciting time. I think, Kate, your career and my career have paralleled where there was a time when it was a little bit stagnant and there wasn't a lot of innovation coming. It was maybe incremental, but it wasn't the paradigm shifts that we're seeing today. And this is really exciting. And I'm not only talking about the advent of gene therapy, but it's so many other innovations in digital health and in drug development and devices that potentially could change the way care is delivered into the future. 
And we did this project that we're continuing called the Blue Sky Project, which is really envisioning what it's going to look like in the future. What's care going to be like in 2030 and beyond? And, you know, I'm really excited because I think care and the opportunities for people living with chronic disease, not just bleeding disorders, but any chronic disease is really going to be exciting and it's going to change dramatically so that we're going to be approaching equitable outcomes and eliminating the inequities that have come over decades and centuries, really, to really bring people up to the same standard in lifestyle and outlook for life that people who aren't encumbered by a diagnosis can enjoy. And that's really where I think the reward for people like you and I is going to come. I hope so. And I hope we're here for long enough to see it. And I also hope that it's not just for the developed world that we're talking. And I know you are as much as me talking about ensuring that we can get care to countries that don't currently have access to it, which will be really fantastic. So important to to keep an eye on the developing world, because that's where real health equity is going to come. Thank you for joining us today, Len, and sharing your thoughts and insights around shared decision making, a topic that no doubt is going to become increasingly relevant both this year and into the future. Please do share this episode with your colleagues or peers who may find this of interest and consider leaving Heemcast a review on Apple Podcasts or rating us on Spotify. This goes a long way in helping Heemcast reach a wider audience in the bleeding disorders community. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll tune into the future episodes and I hope you have a continued good new year. Mm-hmm.